Well, thank you, choir and band. Scott, it's been good to be in the house of the Lord so far this morning, hasn't it? Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for being here today. And it's my personal prayer that you will be encouraged and lifted up as a result of what the Lord has given me to share with you today. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're humbled that you called us. you called us to be your followers. Lord, as uh, Scott has said and the choir sung, we're so unworthy and it's your grace. It's that unmerited favor that we've been given and may we never take it lightly. Lord, we pray for Pastor Mike as he takes a few days away for rest. I pray that you'll give him rest, that you'll give him uh, some relaxation, that you'll recharge him you'll fill him up so that he can come and lead us again next week and the, the weeks that follow. But Lord, as I'm here in his stead, I, I pray that I will do exactly what you want me to do, say what you want me to say, and use this day for your glory. In Jesus' holy name, we pray these things. Amen. So today I'm going to talk to you about finding that's an important word, finding God's peace. So here's the definition of peace. I, mean, I think we all understand what peace is. We have different understandings and different applications and experiences that would, would help us understand peace. But on the slide next here, it tells about peace. It's a concept that often refers to tranquility or a sense of calm. And the English definition of the word peace is free from disturbance. But here's what we've got here in our world today. We have a lot of disturbance. I'm going to ask you to work with me here. How many of you are disturbed about something right now? How many of you are worried about something? Keep your hands up. How many of you are disturbed, worried, concerned, frustrated about some things in your life right now? Just raise your hand. Okay. Now look around. Look at it. Now keep your hands up, Kendall. I saw Kendall put it down here quick. All right. Now look around the rest of the people. The rest of them are liars. <laughs> because God allows disturbances and things in our lives to bring us to him. And I'm going to illustrate that today. Sometimes we think these things are the worst things for us, and yet they're the best things for us. So how do we experience something that's free to disturbance, even when we are actually bothered by the circumstances of our life? We need to go back to what the scripture says, what Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 16. Everybody turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16, open to verse 33. And in honor of God's word, in honor of the words that Jesus said, if you are able, please stand. John 16, 33. He says, I've told you these things so that in me, that's important, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Heavenly Father, may we understand 
these brief yet powerful phrases more fully today. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. You may be seated. He said, I've told you something. I've told you many things so that in me you'll have peace. Why is that important? In me you'll have peace. And in this world, you're going to have trouble. It's not a little bit of trouble. Sometimes you're going to have trouble. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. Take heart. I've overcome the world. So when we look at this scripture, it's important to understand the context in which he said these things. Jesus had just explained that he was getting ready to return to the Father. And he was going to send the Holy Spirit. Oh my, that's important. He tells his followers that they're going to mourn over what's going to happen to him and that many in the world are going to rejoice over his perceived destruction of, his, of their perceived destruction of the ministry that Jesus had. And Jesus acknowledges the pain of all of his followers, yet still tells them to have peace in him. So how are they going to have peace in a moment such as all of this? The word peace that Jesus used in this conversation in Hebrew was the word shalom. Shalom. Shalom means wholeness or completeness. And Jesus became the complete and unblemished sacrifices, sacrifice for our sins and yours and mine and everyone else throughout eternity. So in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this following quote. He says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. It's not there. There's no such thing of happiness and peace apart from Jesus. You'll never find it there. Now, there's another man that I want to quote today. It's E. Stanley Jones. You may not know who E. Stanley Jones is. I've known his quote for decades. And I finally decided to Google and find out who said this. I want to know more about him. Well, E. Stanley Jones, you need to Google him, look up. He's an amazing man that, is, that was in our, our, our lifetime. Died, I think, in 77, sometime in the late 70s. But he said, if you don't surrender to Christ, you surrender to chaos. Now, this man knows a lot about chaos. Here's why. I'm just going to give you a little glimpse of his life. He was in the Situation Room with FDR and the emperor of Japan three weeks before Pearl Harbor, trying to make peace. So when he says this, I hope you'll understand, he says, you, if you don't surrender to Christ, you will surrender to chaos. Has anyone ever experienced chaos? How is chaos? Is that, is that what you pray the first thing when you wake up? Lord, give me some chaos. I, I just thrive on chaos. I can't wait. I want to start chaos. I want to be in chaos. No, chaos is hectic. Chaos is frantic. Chaos drives us nuts. So this saying is very important. If you don't surrender to Christ, you will surrender to chaos. He also says that fear keeps us from having peace. Fear is keeping things in our own hands, he says. And faith is turning them over to the hands of God. How many of you like to keep things in your own hands? How many of you are control freaks in here? Come on, admit it. How many of you in here are control freaks? Every time you try to control things, fear will rise with it. 
Control and fear always go that way. Fear is keeping things in your own hands. Faith is turning them over into the hands of God. So there's no true peace outside of God, we understand. So let's look at what the Bible says about the peace of the Lord. Now, I want you to go to the, the, what Paul wrote to the church of Rome, Romans chapter 5. And before we read this, I want you to understand something. The peace of God is not easily achieved. And I'm going to explain why. But the peace of God is not easily achieved. Look in Romans chapter 5. I've got it somewhere here. I promise you I do. I must have lost my little piece here. There we go. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. I'm going to stop there. Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we receive five things. Okay, I'm going to count them down with you. Number one, we receive peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where peace begins. That's where peace stays. That's where peace will be with us to the end. But there's other ingredients that make that peace happen. Here it is. Not only do we receive peace with God through Jesus, number two, we've obtained access through him by faith into his grace. Now, Scott Shepherd in the choir took us through in his testimony and through the songs of how grace is unmerited favor. We've obtained access to him by faith into his grace in which we stand. So we've got peace. We've obtained access into his grace. Number three, not only that, we can rejoice in our afflictions because we know that afflictions produce endurance. Aren't afflictions great? They're just something that we also wake up for and say, Lord, give me some more afflictions. I love afflictions. How many of you guys in here played football? in school. Any guys in here play football? What is the first week or two of practice every year football like? Huh? Horrible. Why is it horrible? It's hot. Your body's not ready to go through those things. Do you remember what it was like to wake up the next morning after the first day of football practice? You couldn't even lift your legs off the bed. You were so sore. Afflictions are for our benefit. Why? Because he says afflictions produce endurance. In June and July, a little bit before school started in August, you couldn't run near as far or as fast as you could in September and October when it's game time. Afflictions, struggles, workouts, things that test us and try us creates endurance. And then endurance therefore produces proven character. You'll never test your character unless you go through something. How many of you love people of proven character? We go to them for advice. We go to them to pray for us. Proven character is so needed in our church. And proven character then produces hope. And here's the part I haven't read yet. 
It produces hope. And verse 5, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit was given to us when Jesus left us here on this earth. And the Holy Spirit is going to drive and encourage and, and, and align us and convict us of what we're supposed to do the rest of our days here until God calls us home. Well, the disciples had to learn something about God's peace with God in a dramatic and adventurous day, in an adventurous way one day. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. It's a story that we're all quite familiar with. And at the end of Mark chapter 4, the disciples and Jesus get on a boat out in the Sea of Galilee. But before we get to that point, let me back up and give you just a little backstory here. It's been a long and difficult day for Jesus. Jesus, if you look at, the, at just a regular day in the life of Jesus' ministry, he could accomplish more in one day than we could in a lifetime. And multitudes of people are listening to him and making up their minds whether or not this guy's a lunatic or whether he truly is the Son of God. And those decisions were important. So he's going along and, and, and meeting with these people, and he tells them, that I'm going to get this boat, and I'm going to use this boat, boat for a, a pulpit. And so he goes and preaches to the great multitudes that are gathered to hear him. When the day's over, he tells the disciples, let's take this boat over to the other side of the lake. And it's getting dark. It's at the evening time. And so they're getting ready to cross the lake. And this isn't anything new because most of these disciples were fishermen. So this isn't a big deal getting this boat and go across the lake. He's worried from the business of the day, and so Jesus decides to retire into the stern or the rear of the ship, and he's laying on a cushion, and immediately, how many of you, after a long day's work, can fall asleep very easily? Well, it's because Jesus did. Your labor is sweet. <clears throat> so the events that occurs this night would change their lives and their perception of Jesus forever. This is an important time in the life of Jesus, but more importantly, in the life of the disciples. These men found themselves in the storms of the life, in the greatest storm of their life, and they've experienced the Lord's power to take care of them. So number one, it's a night of great danger. Look at Mark 4, verse 37. A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. The storm comes suddenly. Now, Storms are very common on the Sea of Galilee. I looked up some information about, I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, would love to be there, would love to see it sometime in this lifetime, but have not been afforded that opportunity yet. But the Sea of Galilee is an unusual body of water. It's relatively small, it's 13 miles long and seven miles wide. Now that may seem big to you here in Tennessee because we think lakes are just wide spots in the river around here, but, in, but it's, it's a fairly large lake. Uh, in our standards, but it's also 150 feet deep, and the shoreline is 680 feet below sea level. So in the NIV uh, study Bible, it says a little more about the Sea of Galilee. If you don't have a study Bible, I encourage you to get the NIV study Bible. It's really good. But it says uh, about this storm, this storm coming up and this dangerous night, it's situated in the basin surrounded by mountains, and the Sea of Galilee is particularly susceptible to sudden violent storms because cool air from the Mediterranean is drawn down through the narrow mountain passes and it clashes with the hot, humid air lying over the lake. So this 
So this storm comes up very suddenly. Not only is it sudden, it's severe. Now, I know a little bit about how the disciples felt that night, and I want to tell you why. Back when I was roughly 19, 20 years of age, uh, I had had a one-day instruction on sailing. And when you're, I don't know, teenagers, please listen to me. When you're 18 and 19 years of age and you think you know it all, you know nothing. Okay? But I thought I knew everything. And so I told Michelle, you know what? <clears throat> We're going to take this boat out there. My father-in-law's boat. We're going to take it out. And we're going to enjoy a little bit of sailing before the rest of the family gets here for Memorial Day weekend. So we hop in there, and my father-in-law says some very wise words. Todd, I'm not so sure I'd take off in the boat right yet. There's a storm coming. I said, that's all right. We'll be out there, and I'll get back before it happens. No problem. Don't you worry about that. So we hop in this little sailboat, and we take off. And we get out in the middle of Winfield Lake. And the storm is sudden. The storm is severe. Did I say it was severe? It was hell on earth for Michelle and I. I'm telling you right now, it was bad. And the wind came and rose and it blew the... I'm over here. I'm hanging on. I'm laying outside the boat. I'm trying everything I can to keep this boat from coming over. The boat not only comes over and the mass goes into the water, but the mass goes upside down. And the waves are coming over us like crazy. And it's about that time that I get the look from my wife. <laughs> Men, do you know what the look is? Teenagers, you don't have a clue yet. But you're going to get the look. And here was the look. If we survive this, you're dead already. <laughs> so I understand a little bit of what these disciples are going through. The storm is sudden, it's severe, and they're in danger. So not only is it a night of danger, it's a night of two great doubts. Have you ever doubted Jesus? Let's be honest. Have you ever doubted Jesus? I have. Anybody else doubted Jesus? The rest of you are liars. Okay? We've all doubted Jesus because we get fixed on what's going on in our lives and we try to fix it ourselves and we doubt that God can do it. But it was a night of two great doubts. Look at Mark 4.35. On that day when Jesus had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. But he was in the stern, sleeping on his cushion, so they woke him up and said to him this, Teacher! Don't you care that we're about to die? How many times have you said that? Jesus, do you not even care? Do you not care what's going on here? We've all done it. But he's in the stern, sleeping. But the greatest storm that night was not on the Sea of Galilee. It was in the heart of the disciples. Let me explain. The storms on the sea, is, it's whipped up a storm of fear and doubt within them, and they're threatened, they're threatened so much that they think they're going to drown. They run to him, wake him, and said, Do you not care that we're going to die? They're terrified. They've lost all hope of saving the ship. Have you ever been there? Or you've lost all hope of saving the ship. 
Well, here's the first doubt that they had. They doubted his concern for them. They doubted it. They accused the Lord of not caring what they were facing. And why did they doubt? Because after all, they had seen Jesus heal disease, conquer the devil, and all sorts of depravity. They had seen it firsthand in other people. But they themselves, this is different. They themselves are in the middle of this storm and it's affecting them. And it's a different story to them now. And here's what they were guilty of. They were looking at the situation, not the Savior. When you get in the middle of a situation, the natural instinct is to focus on the situation and not the Savior. You know, we, if we're smart, we can let the Holy Spirit talk to us and say, remember when I did this for you. Remember when you thought all was lost, the ship was lost, and I came through for you. But they were focused on the situation, not the Savior. They had their thoughts on the facts and not their faith in Him. Oh, we're good at getting the facts. When we get in the middle of a situation, we know the facts real quick. But we don't have the faith. So not only did they doubt his concern for them, they doubted his commitment to them. Remember, it was Jesus that said, let's go over here to the other side of the lake in the first place. It was his direct. It was his command. But these men had left everything to follow Jesus. And now this Jesus has led them into an impossible situation. How many of you have ever been in an impossible situation? I hope you do. Because that's when God shows up every time. Impossible situations are God's greatest making. They're afraid that, Je they're, afraid that they're just going to die, and Jesus says, I'm afraid you're not going to get it. It was also a night of great discovery. How many of you like to discover things? I mean, seriously, isn't it fun to discover things? Well, I looked up, well, I didn't look up. I was driving down the road this morning, I was passing airport market, and uh, I said, hey, Siri. I can't say now or my phone will mess everything up here. I said, said to Siri, I did it at 9 o'clock, and it started, ding, ding, started talking to me. So I said, give me a list of great discoverers. So here's a list of some of the great discoverers. Um, does anybody know who Albert Einstein was? Do you know what he's, his greatest discovery was? A photon. You all know what a photon is, right? liars. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's the light that goes along in an electromagnetic field, and that's all I could gather, and that's all I had time to study for, but it's, it's out there. It's way above me. Who discovered America? Come on, history majors. Americo Vespucci. He's the one that's credited for discovering America. Uh, how about platinum? Anybody want to know who discovered platinum? A guy by the name of Charles Wood worked together with another guy whose name I can't pronounce. Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. Well, he discovered DC, direct current, which is positive and negative charges. AC wasn't right, he hadn't figured that out yet. But Ben Franklin was, just, was, was for that. How about uh, Pluto? Does anybody know who discovered Pluto? I understand now that's not even a planet. Is that right? See, there's a lot of discoverers out there. Um, here's my favorite, 
Does anybody know who the discoverer George Crumb was? He discovered potato chips. I like that guy. Ah, uh, there's another good one here. Sir Alexander Fleming. This is an important guy. He discovered penicillin. If, uh, if you're a diabetic, uh, aren't you glad there was Sir Alexander Fleming? God created a great guy there. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to declare to you today that there are some great discoverers. But I believe the greatest discoverers were the prophets in the Old Testament, the saints in the Old Testament, and the disciples, including the apostles, including Paul. Because what they discovered about Jesus and told the world is the reason we're all seated here today. It was a night of great discovery. Look at Mark 4, 39 through 41. This is what they discovered. Jesus got up. He rebukes the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey. So through this experience, they made six precious discoveries about our Lord. And they all start with P. I did good. They all start with P. Six P's. Here we go. Here's what they discovered. First, they discovered his power. His power. The storm that so terrified these men posed no problem for Jesus. He rebukes the wind, spoke to the sea, and when he did, the wind fell silent and the sea became a sheet of glass. Would you put that picture up there for me? When I was a teenager, I'm going to pick on you guys. When I was 16 years of age, I got a car, a job, and a girlfriend. Strike one, strike two, strike three. My life got chaos then. Chaos. My parents decided to save up and take a long wanted trip to Yellowstone National Park, and I wasn't going because I had a car, a job, and a girlfriend. Wasn't going to go. And my father, who was a strong man, said, Son, you're going to get your tail in that car, and you're going. So I went. And I saw the Creator create stuff that I never dreamed was possible. And that's a picture of Yellowstone Lake. I thought I'd swim in Yellowstone Lake when I went there that summer. I found out something else about God's power. He can make a lake so beautiful and so freezing cold that you won't ever think about getting in it. <laughs> but that's a picture from June when we took the mission trip up to Wyoming. We were close to Yellowstone and we got to spend one day seeing the highlights of Yellowstone. You can't see everything in Yellowstone in one day. But before we were able to start our ministry, we arrived up there a day early to see it. And that picture is Yellowstone Lake, the coldest lake in our country. And look how still it is. Those are the clouds in the bottom. It's so still. Jesus has the power to control the storm and the sea. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. 
verses 14 through 20. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 20. But before I do, I want you to repeat after me, he is able. And if you believe this, I want you to say he is able again. Do you believe Jesus is able to heal your marriage? Do you believe Jesus is able to take care of your finances? Do you think Jesus created you for a purpose and will fulfill it? Jesus is able. Anytime you're in a storm and you don't know what to do and you're focused on the situation, you need to say, Jesus, you are able to take care of this because your word says so. Well, the prayer that the Apostle Paul had for the church of Ephesians is this. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. You have power in your inner being, church. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able... Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations and forever and ever. Amen. They discovered his power like they had never seen before because it was, it was their story. It was their experience. It wasn't a person that they had, he, that they had seen him healed. It wasn't a person or, or, a, or a satanic situation in, in, in engrossing someone's life. They saw it for themselves and Jesus saved them from their predicament. They discovered his power. Now, what's Acts 1-8 say? You're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost comes on you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria until the ends of the earth. Folks, until we understand the power that is within us through the Holy Spirit that comes from Jesus, we will never accomplish what God's true will is for our lives and what the will is for this church in Dixon County. Have an understanding like the disciples did in the boat that there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And that Holy Spirit guides, convicts, protects, and instructs us to accomplish his will. They discovered his power. Secondly, they discovered his promises are true. Just as he said, look at chapter 5. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 1. He told them to get in the boat and go across the sea. 
Yes, there was a storm. Yes, it was severe. Yes, it was sudden. Yes, they thought they were going to die. But his promises are true. They arrived on the other side of the lake. They learned that he was as good as his word. Well, what did the prophet Isaiah hear from the Lord? Turn back in the Old Testament to Isaiah 55. I'll give you just a second because this is important. What Jesus says is not only true, but it will accomplish what he said he's going to do. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. And he, and he gives it in such a vivid way that we all understand. Did it rain on your way to church today? Well, it rained on me. It's cloudy out. It was, I got some rain. I had to run the windshield wipers this morning. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish. Y'all remember how dry it was just a few weeks ago? You remember how dry it was, how the grass was all, and then all of a sudden the rains came and everything got green again. And I thank the Lord for it. I had to mow again, but. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Verse 11, here it goes, that's important. So is my word that goes out from my mouth it will not return to me empty, but I will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which it was sent. Jesus said, get in a boat, we're gonna go to the other side. He knew full well what he was sending these ways to these guys. He knew full well, but his promises, what he says to do is true, he's faithful, and he's able to deliver us from anything that comes our way. They discovered his power, they discovered his promises, but also they discovered his presence. When the Lord's in the vessel, you have an advantage. The Bible says in this text that there were many other boats on the sea that night, but only one of them had Jesus. When you got Jesus, things are different. When you don't have Jesus, and, when, and even if, if believers aren't focused on Jesus, and submitting and, and, and obeying Jesus, there's problems. But if you have Jesus in your vessel, things are different. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's the Great Commission. Jesus parts to them and parts to them who he is. He says, all authority, which is power, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's more power than President Biden. It's more power than your boss. It's more powerful than your parents. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So here's what you do. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've taught you. And here's the promise. And I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Do you know within the Bible over 70 times, the Bible says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Don't get fixed on the situation and not on the Savior. The situations are just a tool to get us closer into the relationship and the image and the person of Jesus Christ. God's got it all put together. 
They experienced his power. They discovered his promises. They discovered his presence. Number four, they discovered his purpose. The storms taught these men that they, in, in a way that they would have never learned any other way. It had been nice if they had learned what, what he had done in the past to other people, but it's, they were unable to process the information and apply it to their own lives. Don't do that. Don't process the information from the Bible. Don't process the information from other people's testimony and not apply it to your own life. You're not special. You're not unique. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God's not going to treat you differently than anybody else. He's not going to leave you out on a limb and cut you off. It will not happen. His purpose is to educate you, to teach you to trust him. His purpose is not to hurt you, but to grow you. So not only his purpose they discovered, they discovered his peace. While they're worrying and fretting and fearing what's going, what the Lord's going to do, he's sleeping. And why is Jesus sleeping? Because he was smack dab in the center of his father's will. Jesus knew that he was going to die on a cross, not in a sinking ship. The Jesus we serve, the God we serve knows everything. He knew he wasn't going to die on that ship and neither were they. He's going to give his life on a cross for you and me. His purpose and his peace is amazing. He can sleep during a storm because he trusts the Father to take care of him. And so can we. Turn in your Bibles to John 14 verses 25 to 27. I'm, I'm finishing up here. John chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. He says, all this I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the counselor or the Holy Spirit, oh boy, here we go. Jesus said, I've said all this to you while I'm still with you, but I'm sending the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name and will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives it. Peace is going to come differently through Jesus. So don't let your heart be troubled and don't be afraid. Jesus will grant you peace in the midst of your storm. The last thing they learned about Jesus was his personhood. You know, I know a lot of, of you personally in here. I know of your personhood. But I long to know the personhood of Jesus far more than to know you. When Jesus calmed the sea, they were amazed and said, what manner of man is this? They learned, look on the screen, they learned that he's the one in control of every puff of wind, every angry wave, and every storm in your life. He's the one that's in control. 
So in closing, I want us to read Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Brittany and musicians, if you'll come up here and get ready for a time of decision, I would appreciate it. Philippians 4, 8 and 9 is a great scripture. He says, finally, brothers, and y'all are thinking, finally, Todd's getting here. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, and if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you have seen or learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice, Paul says. And what happens when you do that? And the God of peace will be with you. So in closing, I don't know about your storm, but I know who can still it. If it's a storm of suffering, I know who can ease your pain. If it's a storm of sorrow, I know who can comfort your soul. If it's a storm of sin, I know who can deliver you and set you free because that's what Jesus did for me. I was stuck in sin as a 16-year-old, totally, totally having a lack of understanding about what this world was all about. And somebody had the opportunity and they did it. They invited me to church. I heard the truth for the first time. The, the unexplainable truth I heard for the first time, and I had to do something about it. I gave my life to Jesus, and he delivered me. He set me free. And he can do that for you. So you're in the middle of a storm, or you're going to have a storm coming. The question is, what are you going to do in the middle of your storm? You can either surrender to God or you can surrender to chaos. I hope you choose the first. So as we come to this invitation, we're going to do it a little differently. You can stand and worship if you want to. You can sit and worship and ponder what the Word of God has said to you today. If you need to pray, you can come to these benches. If you need to come and talk to one of the pastors here at the church and say, I need this Jesus you're talking about, you can come and talk to us. But this invitation is for you, and you're free to respond however you want to. But I've asked Brittany to sing this song because it sums up everything that I've tried to explain to you today. And I pray that you will worship and that you will act upon what the Lord would have you to do during this time of decision over the next three minutes. Heavenly Father, speak to us. Show us the way in the storms of our life. And Father, for those who need to join this church, to come and make a decision, to come and pray, whatever their needs are, Father, I pray that they feel the freedom to come forward and do whatever you're calling them to do. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray these things. Amen.